Hi, it's John Hall. You've been hearing me talk about All About Beer on this show, and I hope you'll check out allaboutbeer.com and follow along on social media at All About Beer. And we've also launched a few new podcasts. So this week, I'm bringing you a recent episode of the All About Beer podcast. It's hosted by M. Souter and Don Tess, and this episode is a conversation with Randy Mosher. You likely know him. He's the author of Tasting Beer and other important books. He's a brewer, an instructor, an artist, and an all-around thoughtful guy who has helped countless drinkers and brewers better appreciate beer. And I was so struck by this conversation that I wanted to bring it to this channel for you to hear. To listen to future episodes of the All About Beer podcast, search All About Beer on your podcast platform of choice, and then you can subscribe. You'll also be able to listen to the Beer Traveler podcast as well as the Brewer to Brewer podcast on that channel. And we have some new shows coming down the road as well. If you want to support any of those shows, we've set up a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash allaboutbeer, or you can learn more about advertising on these shows by emailing info at allaboutbeer.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Drink Beer, Think Beer. Hi, I'm Don Tess, better known as the Dawn of Beer. And I'm M. Sauter, better known as Pints and Panels. Welcome to the sixth episode of the All About Beer podcast. Every two weeks, we talk with leading experts and take a deep dive into one topic in beer. Please visit allaboutbeer.com and follow us on social media at allaboutbeer. And visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to support this show and others like it. This week on the show, we're going to talk to Randy Mosher, author of Tasting Beer and the upcoming book, Your Tasting Brain. Em, have you read Tasting Beer? Uh, it's only one of my favorite beer books besides yeah. my book. <laughs> uh, anytime, books. yeah. Anytime someone is like, what book, beer book should I read? You know, yes. I'm a new drinker or I'm learning. I always tell them to buy Tasting Beer. Yeah. I always uh, tell people if you only read one book about beer, it should be Tasting Beer. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to read that versus my book. I mean that actually, <laughs> which is like the craziest thing ever. Um, but it's I do just, think people it's a great should book. read your book, though. Uh, well, on. you know, you're just saying that because you're nice. Uh, no, <laughs> no, it's also a very good book, too. But for the depth of knowledge, uh, tasting beer is where it's at. Yeah. Uh, well, I've always said that if Randy Mosher wrote it, you should read it. So I'm really looking forward to hearing about this new book that he's uh, currently writing. We'll introduce our guest and get into a conversation. But first, we're going to take a moment to hear from our sponsors and if you would like to help support the All About Beer podcast, please reach out to podcast at allaboutbeer.com. This show is brought to you by Athletic Brewing Company. Athletic Brewing Company's award-winning craft non-alcoholic beers are fit for all times. Downtime, work time, game time, even gym time. Pick a time and grab an athletic because it's about time you could enjoy a great tasting brew anytime you want, even right now. Head to athleticbrewing.com and get some fresh brews delivered. New customers can even get 20% off with code ALLABOUTBEER20 and free shipping on two six-packs or more. Hi, this is John Hall, the editor of All About Beer, inviting you to check out the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast. It's available on all of the major platforms, and the weekly show features long-form conversations with brewers, growers, and personalities from the beer industry. New episodes release every Wednesday. Just search Drink Beer, Think Beer. Randy Mosher is a writer and creative consultant. Author of five books on beer and brewing, Mosher provides training and lectures around the world and teaches at the Siebel Institute Brewing School. 
He has a background in design and advertising and frequently consults on new product development and branding for breweries and specialty food and beverage companies. Based in Chicago, he is currently a minority partner in two Chicago area breweries. Welcome to the show, Randy. Thanks, uh, Don. Great to be here. So I was looking, and I can't believe it's already been five years, but the second edition of Tasting Beer came out five years ago. Yeah. What have you learned since then? Well, I've been on, I've been, I've been embarked on an incredible journey through the science of tasting. I'm working on a new book for the University of Chicago Press. Um, it's not really going to be quite an academic book. You know, it's more of a popular science type book, but it's it's got to be all documented and footnoted and everything. So I've been reading just enormous stacks of paper papers on on every aspect of tasting from from uh, taste itself to smell to um, mouthfeel, multimodal stuff, how your brain works, um, getting a real a real um, education in in uh, neuroscience. So it's been really interesting. I'm I've got two more chapters to go, and I'm I'm hoping hopefully going to wrap that up in the next uh, couple of months, and I will be glad to get it off my desk. But I'm excited because there's um, there's a huge amount of stuff I had no idea. Uh, about how this all works. So it's it's really been kind of a thrill. When does that new book come out? Like, do you have a publishing date? Yeah, my my sense is that probably it's going to be 2024, um, you know, because it's a fairly long process of getting it out to, um, you know, subject matter reviewers, basically peer, peer review, and then uh, going through that editorial process. So that would be my best guess right now. And, and it's not specifically about beer, but uh, what can you break down for it? Like, what can you tell our listeners um, that you've learned that's interesting that that might affect the way they taste beer? Well, there's so much. Uh, you know, first of all, it, is the, the one thing, and I because I've done a lot of, of training of people and sensory stuff, everybody thinks they're terrible at this, and and we're really not so bad. Um, you know, when they, when, you know, we, we think about, they compare us to dogs or bears or whatever, or even mice and rats and, you know, they have their sensitivities, but every creature has a, has a, um, sensory system that's really adapted to their lifestyle and their needs. And we've adapted to our lifestyle and our needs. And that includes cooking. Um, we've shed a whole bunch of the really instinctual, um, uh, smells, especially uh, smells of aggression and fear and and um, sexual aspects, we retain a tiny bit of that. But but rats and mice, you know, they're 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 captives of that, right? So if they smell fox urine or cat uh, spit, they f- instinctively freeze, and there's nothing. They don't have any conscious choice in that. So there's a whole bunch of it's a whole bunch of different uh, different things. You know, they've actually done. They did a study where they took a, a chocolate-soaked rag and they dragged it randomly across a big field, and then they got people blindfolded and down on their hands and knees and had them track the scent, just like dogs, Ooh. and they, it worked great. And people by the, by the and and people <laughs> were crazy. like they were down on their hands and knees and they're swinging they're swinging their heads side to side, you know, like animals do because that's like oh is it over here is it over here is it over here, you know because smell is famously kind of vague in terms of its um like where it is it's it's imprecise in time and space as the scientists say 
Uh, but but uh, and the more they do it, the better they get at it. And and uh, you know, oh. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say they could they could uh, you know match a, a trained bloodhound or anything. But uh, you know, we have a lot of we have a lot of tricks up our sleeve, and and all the all the aromas that uh, form up form cooking, all the things like we know in beer as Maillard components. That is everything having to do with roasting and toasting of the malt. Um, mice and rats can't smell that stuff at all. Or oh, really, we, we have many, many orders of magnitude, better sensitivity. And we also have many more copies of, of odorants, uh, of receptors for odorants than rats and mice do. They may have two where human beings, I think we have an average of about 15 cop copies of the gene, which means they're going to, those things are going to show up in our, in our nose uh, in greater frequency. So, so we have, we have quite a bit of sensitivity. It's just unfair to compare us to animals because our needs are different. Um, so that's I, one thing. The other, uh, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to say that I hope that there's a video of the people crawling around in the field. <laughs> they took one. Uh, I'll send you the link on the on the uh, okay, please on the, on the paper because there's photographs of it in there, and I don't know whether there's a uh, a video or not, but it wouldn't. I, I'm sure they filmed it because okay. why wouldn't you? You know. Uh, but I interrupted you, Randy. You keep going. Yeah, because I could just keep going for hours on this. The, the other thing is that it so so don't feel bad if you're if you don't feel competent in this. The more you pay attention to it, the better you get. Smell is highly um, subject to attention, and it's not just brain attention; it's physiological attention, right? So so what you smell literally becomes what you can smell. So oh. so. You know, I'm living in a, a, a city house in Chicago, but if I were to move out to the country within about two weeks, I'd have a partially different set of olfactory receptors. And th and that's that's the way we fine tune ourselves, that 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 those smells and what the receptors are responding to actually generates more copies of those of those receptors. Can I pull on that thread a little bit then? Yeah. Like if, if you're olfactory, then do you become, not only are you more sensitive to those aromas, but then do you actually enjoy them more? And then does this become a cycle where, and the reason I'm asking this is like, for example, everybody's loving tropical fruit aromas in, uh, in beers now. And like, sure. does this just keep getting more and more and more because, because we as beer drinkers love them more because our olfactory senses have grown to like them. Well, the senses don't like, but the brain does. But right. uh, but there's a strong correlation in all the experiments I've read between familiarity and preference. And you know, there, there's this thing in the brain called hedonic hedonic value, right? And right. and we have a very complicated engine in our brain that's composed of a lot of different parts, including limbic limbic parts like the amygdala, but also a lot of um, um, cortex. You know, a lot of higher brain things and together they they assign value to things and then calculate the probability of the value being worth a certain expenditure or a certain risk to get it and we value every possible thing you could imagine we value pokemon cards we value a new uh, like a wax job on the car we value you know whatever it is um so we you know and the, everything has a value um but but uh so yeah and 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 really like if you're taking a Cicerone exam or something where you you want to you want to know those chemicals, you have to actually get in there and practice. 
You know, I talked to a, a flavor uh, scientist who was complaining to me that he was a little rusty because he hadn't practiced in a couple of months. Oh. On, yeah, you got it. On, beer, okay. on like the specific beer off flavors. So really it's, you know, it's it's this idea that that you get out of it what you put into it. So if you're feeling like, oh, I can't do this and that puts you off, then yeah, you're going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, but but you, you want to jump on it and do it. The other thing is, is that we are particularly poor at generating words out of smells. Because, because for kind of complicated reasons, the, the main thrust of it is that smells are a kind of a sensation that can't be de decomposed into its component parts. Like, so, so if, you, if you stare at the clouds, right? And you look at those clouds and all of a sudden it goes from being a shapeless cloud and you see an arm or you see a head or you see something and then that cloud, your brain fills in the whole pattern. Oh, that's a horse head and look, there's his tail and it's moving. And then in another 30 seconds, the cloud has shifted, right? So your brain's not, like your brain loses that pattern. So, so you, you, you have like body parts, you have lines, you have shapes, you have planes, you have shadows, you have highlights, you have all these things in, in vision because vision processes the incoming stimulus in sequential things to, to decompose it, right? To pull it. And that's what they do with robotic vision, right? They pull it out and it's like, well, what's the foreground? What's moving? What's not? Like, what's the 3D aspect of this thing? But smell just sort of gushes into your brain after the second synapse, it's already up in your cortex, uh, which it would envision it takes many more uh, neural stages, right? Many more synapses from group to group to group to do this at, at every point in vision, that's feeding a little more information into your into the parts of your brain that do the recognizing. So so we we don't so that makes it very difficult to pull language out because mm -hmm. those that's those are cognitive things that takes place in the higher brain. And the cognitive brain sometimes looks at the looks at a smell and all you get from the smell is a emotion and a maybe some suggestion of a place or, or a time. You know, we've all had those hippocampus memories, right? Where, you know, the famous um, bite of a madeleine that's, that's, that, you know, starts 200 pages of discussion in that, in that um, book. So I um, wanted to ask you about that, actually, because yeah. I, I love nostalgia as a tasting tool. I actually, I, so, so side note, I was just at my old summer camp. Mm hmm. Uh, in Maine, and I hadn't been there in 15 years. And the minute I opened the door, it was like 1999. Yeah, like it absolutely. smelled. It yeah. I didn't table. Well, really those are they, those are autobiographical memories, you know. And those are like, do you think those are really good for tasting or a powerful oh, yeah. component for tasting? Because I know that you bring those that that up in in tasting beer, and it's something oh, yeah. that I get I get weird with tasting notes. Everyone knows that I'm if. Uh, <laughs> anyone reads any of my tasting notes, I get real like nostalgic with it because I think it's so powerful. And I know that yeah. you've, yeah, you feel the same yeah, way. No, it's powerful. And I, I will just say that like three years of, of hard academic research has only um, in, you know, strengthened my view in that regard, that those, it, first of all, you're never wrong with those. Your brain is incapable of, of getting those things wrong. You know, and they're super powerful. That's a lot of what, uh, you know, like people, people, military people with PTSD 
those are very strong triggers for them, especially burn like fire and burning, burning, like barbecuing is kind of a terrible thing for a lot of those, um, you know, like the Iraq war vets, all those war vets come back and they've had these experiences where, you know, tank has been blown up or whatever. And they're, they're dealing with this. And those are really, really strong triggers. But as a taster, you know, the trick is that they don't like, you have two kinds of recognition systems in your brain. And one is the, are those autobiographical memories that come with a, a strong sense of place because that's a hippocampus like they, it's about place. Uh, so if you're a mouse, you can return to where that good feeling happened, right? When you ate something good or had sex or whatever it is. And then um, uh, the, the other part is in your cognitive brain where language lives. And those two systems sort of like they're really different. And uh, when what we're trying to do in tasting is you're trying to identify something and you're trying to identify, um, you know, some particular characteristic and put a name on it. And your, your, your limbic brain can't do that. It can only give you that hint of here you were at a certain time, at a certain place. And then you've got to like do the work and look around that environment, like virtually swivel your head around. And it's like, okay, was it like the maple syrup on pancakes at the mess hall at camp? Or was it just that weird musty kids and musty plus kid smell, you know, in the, in the residence or like, what was it? And you, you know, if you, if you put two and two together, you can sometimes come out with it. Um, so, so don't feel bad if you don't have the lang, you know, if you don't know the language. And, and also, you know, the other thing about language is that every pursuit has its own specific language that people engaged in it use to talk to each other, right? So wine people have certain, you know, they have a term called volatile acidity. Well, that refers to a certain class of acids. We don't talk about those in beer with that term. You know, it includes acetic and a bunch of other uh, um, carboxylic and some carboxylic acids and things. We don't use that terminology, but we'll use lactic, for example, you know, and that'll, that'll, that, so, so we have a different thing. So anybody who's going to be a, a beer professional, uh, you need to learn how everybody else categorizes things and that what they, you know, how, what do you need to learn those words, but those words uh, you also have to kind of internalize them because you can't just read, read a book and then know what that smells like. Uh, you got to do go off and, you know, do the work, find them in context. You know, some things actually taste different in a light beer than they do in a dark beer, for example. So my head is about to explode, I think. I love it. On my head, <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it exploded right now, I'd be like, cool, worth it. <laughs> um, do we learn pleasure from flavor and and where you were kind of talking about you know wine terms and everything and i was just thinking about how you know retinomyces is acceptable in certain types of beer mm -hmm. uh but basically is verboten in wine mm -hmm. uh why is it is it just bias is it are these learned things or do we innately like certain things and dislike certain things you know what it, it it's kind of complicated but it's not that hard to understand <coughs> our Emotional feelings for basic tastes, sweet, sour, salty, bitter. Those are very strongly influenced by, um, really by instinct, by our physiological responses, which are based on the, our needs for them, right? So salt 
tastes better when your body's depleted of salt, right? And when right. you're when you're at a normal salt level, salty stuff doesn't taste as good to you. And um, sweet sweetness the same way satiation, you know, satiation definitely dims that down. There's a whole control system that works based on on um, hormones and other things, but like uh, um, insulin, for example, that squirts up into your hypothalamus and your hypothalamus is part of this big regulatory thing. And that pushes down on the brain, like basically tells the brain, yeah, I don't like that stuff right so much right now. You're new, you know, like, don't be so hungry because you're already full, you know, and those are independent for every sense too. So like, that's why you can, you can fill yourself up with a regular meal. Oh, then the sweet stuff comes out and, you know, but guess what? You're not satiated on sweet. So you've got the opportunity to do oh, that. Man. You have right? always so, room for dessert. Yeah. Always. So a lot of, so, the, but smells quite different. Um, smell, we have a general predisposition in favor of things like esters, right? So esters are a group of flavor compounds, aroma, really aroma compounds that are very common in fruit. And they're very, um, really typical of fermentation, like beer fermentation, wine fermentation. Uh, we're, we're generally predisposed to like those. Uh, but those predispositions on smell are weak, but they get strengthened by our life experiences. And they get especially, there's a kind of a rub off effect to aromas based on taste, right? So, so you don't have to get too far into the brain uh, to understand that all of that really what we talk about is flavor and a beer tasting. We call it tasting, but tasting is a terrible word for it because there is a sense called taste, right? That's, that's just right. one thing. Uh, but so it's all multimodal. So the, the, um, these things work together, right? So, so you, you know, the, if, if your constant association with fruitiness is with sweet, well, guess what? That is a strong rub off effect. Right. And and the same, the opposite is true also. If you're um, you know, if if you eat something uh toxic and it's uh it happens to be bitter and you get sick from it, um, then you know, you're gonna have that you're gonna have that uh rub-off effect in the kind of wrong direction, you know. Well, it's the right direction for your body. Um, so so liking and disliking that hedonic valuation. That's a strong rub off from from taste and also from trigeminal, which are the mouthfeel sensations. Uh, so so as we you know, that's why like people, <laughs> it's interesting. People who like uh, bitter who who like bitter beer are not less sensitive to bitter. They generally are more sensitive to bitter, and the more sensitive to bitter, the generally the more they like it because these are also people who are novelty seeking and who are looking for that experience, right? That intensive experience um, because, because, uh, you know, bitterness can deliver that experience to that, just that sense of potency, right. And, and, and having an intense uh, taste flavor experience. And, and psychologically, there's a lot of us who, who really enjoy that for its sake. And the more bitter it is, the more we like it, even though bitterness is kind of, you know, all the, all the papers say bitterness, oh, it represents poison and things, but it's a lot more complicated than that. Hmm. That's amazing. Okay. Um, I have, can I take a little bit of a detour, I guess. 
one of the things that I learned from you, Randy, is that, uh, you know, when we sniff something, uh, that's, I think it's called orthonasal. Mm-hmm. And then, but when we're, when we're eating or drinking, the, the flavor part of aroma is actually retronasal. Correct. Um, why would there, like, is there a um, evolutionary reason why we would have these two different uh, abilities to smell? Well, uh, evolutionarily, it's fairly recent. Oh. Right? This, is, this is something that really uh, is only in some apes and humans. Uh, it's not in all primates. And it's, it's a complicated bunch of things, but one of the things is that it's um, related to is an upright posture because the whole geometry of the nose and the mouth uh, are changed. Most animals, uh, they can either breathe or they can smell, but not both, right? There's a, there's a thing in there, oh. in their uh, back in their, th- between their nose and their throat that will like, if they're, if they're got something in their throat, their nose is completely closed off. So they can only smell through their nose, like a dog, for example, or a rat. And so we have this more recent adaptation that's based, that seems to be based on like our lifestyle as hominids, or at least as, uh, you know, I think the chimpanzees have this ability as I recall. Um, but um, so it's it's a very late adaptation and it has, you know, I think it it has, my, I, my recollection is it has something to do with a very widely varied diet. And, um, you know, it, because retronasal is all about food and it's right. a little too late. Once you're breathing out the smell, it's a little too late to reject it. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's not too late to have an experience about it and to do this sort of post ingestion um, evaluation, right? How much did I like this? You know, because it's like, that's, it, it's more about retronasal, even though they use the same receptors, those receptors also can detect airflow. So your brain knows which way that breath is going, whether it's coming in or going out. And it sets up a different circuitry to do that. So the orthonasal coming from the front, that's a little more analytic, right? That's a little more like looking for trouble. Is this something good? Is this something bad? Whereas retronasal it's already in your mouth so presumably it passed the first test and you got it in your mouth and you didn't need to spit it out which would have been another thing if it had been say too too salty or something you know for yeah. a taste or a mouthfeel too peppery uh, or uh, too bitter you know would have caused you to kind of like reflexively gag that back out right um so it's it's um you know it's it's not exactly clear like why that is uh but i think it, it's certainly something that adds a lot to our appreciation and understanding of food and uh because we have so much control over that now um you know it's certainly very useful for us yeah so the, the, yeah. the whole yeah the whole point then of retronasal is just to make us enjoy it again kind of more like a final check on like did i like that was that really good i thought that was good it didn't seem too bad do can i confirm that you know I, yeah i use it for judging when i judge beer it's oh, kind oh, of yeah, you finishing it. you blow out through your nose and it's you get a whole new sense of aroma sometimes 
You do. It's really helpful to be like, oh, I didn't get that, you know, at the first sniff. But once I've swallowed it and blown out through my nose, like, oh, wow, that's really fruity or that's, you know, really trouble or there's an off flavor I didn't know about. Like, it's really helpful to kind of get the complete beer packet. So when I'm doing this ortho retronasal, I find uh, it useful to kind of pump. So I'll do like a, a one, like one or two second cycle where I'll, I'll breathe out through my nose and then I'll take a little breath in and then I'll breathe out through my nose. And then maybe do that four or five, six times, very gently. And, (laughs) and they find it, it kind of reinforces, um, it reinforces the sensation. Are you, each time you do that, are you noticing different, like, does the aroma change throughout that time or, or you're just using that, all those breaths to search? Well, yeah, I mean, you can only really focus on on like they've done tests and the average uh, person, even a not the average person, any people, even a a flavorist or a or a a wine professional or perfumer or a beer expert can only your brain can only juggle about three aromatic chemicals at a time in the brain, because that's just all the attention we have for them. Uh, so every time you take another sniff or have another retronasal thing, you can swivel that attention and kind of focus for things, right? And that's another really important part of, of um, beer tasting. And that's something you learn when you're doing judging is that um, you have this incredible ability uh, to focus and and based on what your expectations are. You know, so expectation is sort of the other half of attention. It's kind of what drives attention, right? So, so if you're if you're judging a category of stouts, you know, you're not looking for a lot of uh, tropical hop aroma or very lightly caramelized malt notes. You know, you're going to go for what the stouts bring into the table, and uh, so that's another really important aspect is to kind of know what you're expecting and then look for that. And of course, when you're judging your expectations are on that BJCP form or whatever judging system you're using. And you almost, I mean, they are literally a checklist of what your expectations ought to be for any given style. Right. You know, that you're looking for a certain malt character, you're looking for a certain overall impact, bitterness, you know, all of those characteristics. So that guides your, you know, that's why judging is so great. Uh, if you're, if you're going to do this, I mean, I've told a room full of Budweiser distributors, if you guys want to be beer experts, you need to go judge homebrew. Right. Because it focuses your mind in a way that no amount of sitting around on your own, just sniffing beer is ever going to do. Um, I tell people all the time to judge and steward homework competitions when yeah, like when people are like, how are you an international beer judge? How did you do that? And I'm like, go judge homebrew competitions. Like that's yeah. the number one thing you want to get into beer and really understand it. The yeah. BJCP and homebrew competitions. I've learned, you learn so much in a few hours, more than you'd ever think. It's absolutely true. And, and you know, the other great thing about judging is that it's, you know, another thing that's really important for people who want to be serious tasters is to uh, calibrate yourself. You know, when you, when you go to work, when you, if you were to go to work for New Belgium and you get into their tasting program, for example, uh, they would do quite a bit of training and testing on you to see where your strengths and weaknesses are, because, you know, we got almost 400 different kinds of olfactory receptors and a lot of them have um, various types of genetic uh, variation. You might have, you know, you might have multiple copies of the gene, but the gene comes in a strong form and a weak form, right? 
And so if you've got two copies of the strong, like sensitive form, you're going to be really sensitive to certain chemicals. And the opposite is true. You might have two copies of the gene that are just like, eh, I'm not getting that diacetyl, you know? And so, you know, there's no, no such thing really as a super smeller in terms of somebody just being really exemplary in that, in that, you know, like super sensitive to everything, but we all are super smellers on some things, but we're also kind of flavor blind on some other things. And so you have to learn, like if you're sitting around a table and you're the only one not getting acid aldehyde, you're either not sensitive to it or you just haven't figured out what it smells like yet. Um, right. Cause that's a, that's a kind of a tough chemical to get to know to before it clicks, you know, before you really uh, understand it. Okay, well, I, I want to pull on that thread a little bit, but first let's hear a word from our sponsors. This show is brought to you by Athletic Brewing Company. Athletic Brewing Company's award-winning craft non-alcoholic beers are fit for all times, downtime, work time, game time, even gym time. Pick a time and grab an athletic because it's about time you could enjoy a great tasting brew anytime you want even right now. Head to athleticbrewing.com and get some fresh brews delivered. New customers can even get 20% off with code ALLABOUTBEER20 and free shipping on two six-packs or more. Hi, this is John Hall, the editor of All About Beer, inviting you to check out the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast. It's available on all of the major platforms, and the weekly show features long-form conversations with brewers, growers, and personalities from the beer industry. New episodes release every Wednesday. Just search Drink Beer, Think Beer. And we're back with Brandy Mosher. Hi, um, Yeah, so right before the break, you were talking about, you know, how some people might have some blindness. Earlier in our chat, you were talking about how uh, a lot of this is learnable. You were talking about um, you know, the people in the field and, and it's actually a learnable skill. Like, is there actually, like, are there times where it, people truly are blind to certain aromas or, or flavors and, and, uh, and in those cases aren't learnable or, or is everything do you feel learnable? Uh, we are not equally sensitive to all things, right? So, you know, whether like you might be a hundred times less sensitive to a certain chemical, let's just say diacetyl. Um, that means in most situations where, where diacetyl starts to be a problem in a beer, um, that's gonna be a problem for you. You know, you, yeah. you, as a brewer and you're blind to diacetyl, you wanna make sure you got somebody around that knows what that is and you can say, hey, you know, what is this? Is this like, is there any diacetyl? I hired a colorblind art director one time and he was a really good art director. I never regretted it. He was a fantastic guy, but he would walk down the hall with a box full of magic markers and say, can you pick out some green ones for me? I got to draw a tree. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, so I mentioned acetaldehyde, which brings up another really interesting point. You know, that's a chemical that is, that is always like invariably described in the books as having a green apple character. Yes. So for me, I'm judging and judging and judging years, judging going by and people are getting acetaldehyde and I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about. And I started to think, well, maybe I'm just blind to that because um, I was looking for Jolly Rancher, right? Uh, right. And and really a green apple. I, I mean, that's sort of what a Jolly Rancher, but I was looking for that specific thing. Well, it turns out it's a really uh, complicated chemical. You know, it's it can smell like, for some people, it's really like 
Jolly Rancher, Green Apple. For me, the first time I really got it, I had an image pop into my head that was like a lawnmower rolling over kind of rotten apples that had fallen off a tree. And so I got this like wet grass and rotten apple kind of smell. And it's like, oh, that's what it is for me. And then it, because it's an aldehyde and aldehydes are generally associated with, with um, grassy, green, grassy, and, and then in the longer molecules, kind of fatty components like um, that coriander, uh, that cilantro smell everybody hates. That's an aldehyde too. Um, oh. But so, and then somebody said, no, it's like pumpkin guts. And then somebody said, no, it's like a flower shop. And then somebody said, oh, it's like latex paint drying. It's actually like br drunk breath because that's the chemical that gets, that the yeast turns into alcohol. And when your liver starts to detoxify alcohol, it's the acetaldehyde that, um, that, that it turns the alcohol into. So on your breath, that gets in your bloodstream, that may be what's actually intoxicating rather than the alcohol itself. Uh, but, but uh, and the other thing, so, so there's a lot of different things that it can feel like, right? And, and you just got to find the one that resonates for, you. for you. And then you know right. it. The, the, uh. the, the problem, see, our, our, we have 400, almost 400 different olfactory receptors. And anything we smell creates a particular pattern of those. And they fight for they fight amongst each other, and there's positive, um, there's po positive binding, and there's negative binding, and there's null binding, and there's all. The, it's very complicated the way the the way these receptors, these patterns are created, um, and then those are processed and clarified. But ultimately, when they come out of the olfactory bulb, all that information about what the components are is completely lost. And the olfactory bulb translates it into things that are relevant for us. So even one chemical is going to create a similar pattern of responses because any given aroma or any given molecule, most molecules will, will trigger responses in multiple receptors. And most receptors are sensitive to more than one chemical. It's not universally true, but that's there are some exceptions to that. So even a single chemical will tri trigger a complicated pattern. So our brains, the pattern that what that information that comes out of our olfactory bulb and goes into our brain, that's what's called a con configural per perception. And that's basically that characteristic I was talking about with regard, like when I was talking about identification is that it's it configural just means everything is all glommed into one thing so that smell is one thing to your brain, right? And it doesn't have a lot of component parts and pieces. You don't, you're, you're, even your unconscious brain doesn't have access to the, um, to, to, the, to the molecules that actually generated the pattern. That is all completely thrown out during the olfactory bulb and they make something that's infinitely more useful for us, but it makes it difficult. So it's helpful, I think, to understand that process. That actually leads to a question I wanted to ask is that, you know, it's it's so complicated as you said um what do you think about breweries uh and 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 ingredients manufacturers i think uh, honing in sometimes on on certain chemicals and i'm thinking about you know thiols are, are a big thing right now or, or yeah. terpenes and um is that a misguided effort since since flavor and aroma are so complicated or or is there value to this no that's just cooking you know, we've been doing that for a million years. 
Yeah. Uh, basically manipulating, manipulating what we ingest based on what our preferences are. So, you know, it's just a different way of doing it. We've been playing around, you know, I'm involved with a couple of commercial breweries and we've been playing around with the, with the thiol yeasts, um, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to best use them. They're a little bit of a wild beast because they tend to want to do one thing really well. So we're trying to figure out how to kind of throttle them down and keep everything from tasting like grapefruit. Um, but it's certainly interesting and there's going to be a lot more of that coming. You know, they, they know so much about the various kinds of pathways, um, you know, um, there, there's a lot of really interesting things going on. Yeast is going to get more and more and more interesting, I think, going forward here. Yeah. So like what kind of like thiols and yeast, like what are you using at, or is this at like Forbidden Root or other yeah. brewery where like, what are, what, are, what are you guys up to over there? At Forbidden Root, we're using the thiolized, um, we're using the thiolized yeast from Omega, the Star Party and um, uh, what's the other one? There's, they have two of them. Yeah. One, one is the sort of uh, English strain that's the big one with the uh, New England guys, and the other one is a Chico. Um, hmm. I, I can't remember. I, I can't remember that other name. But, <laughs> can I? But but uh, but so yeah. I mean, what so so thiols are are basically sulfur compounds. We're exquisitely sensitive to sulfur compounds, um, and they tend to be the most potent odor odor aromas we can we can smell. They really, up until the last couple of decades, they really didn't have the <coughs> analytical means to evaluate them in complicated things like wine and beer, maybe maybe more than two decades, but not that long because they're present in like low or even sub parts per billion and not just present, but meaningful. All right. So they do they do all these things, these uh, the flavor scientists doing all these things where they're trying to determine, pull an aroma apart into its component molecules and determine what's, what's most, uh, what's important, but it, but it's rarely, well, it really is never based on the quantity of the molecule. It's based on what's something called odor activity value. So something like one of these, one of these thiols that you find in, in, in these uh, tropical fruits or grapefruit or passion fruit, or, you know, anything that they, they come that they're in otherwise. Um, those those might be several order of magnitude stronger, more potent, but they're they're present in very small amounts. But they have a huge a huge a very high uh, odor uh, odor impact and odor activity value. So so that all of this is really relatively new. And uh, the other thing I forgot to mention when we were talking about retronasal is that the um, a lot of what what would otherwise be aroma chemicals like esters and well not so much esters but like uh, uh, flavor alcohols and, and terpenoids and things like that in in a beer and in wine especially in wine especially in fruit they're bound up in the form of glycosides so that's just a word for a, a kind of a combined molecule that consists of a sugar ring with a with a with a odor type chemical bound onto it. And when, as long as that odor molecule remains stuck to a big, heavy, carbon-rich sugar molecule, it ain't going anywhere, and it doesn't have any smell value. Uh, but what happens is during fermentation, you liberate some of these, um, these things. Also, there's another form that are, 
that are basically the same process, but with a couple of different amino acids. And that's what these thiols are bound onto. So those yeasts just amplify up the number of copies of the gene for an enzyme uh, called a lyase enzyme that pops those thiol molecules off of those amino acids and then makes them uh, smellable. But you also have a lot of those enzymes present in your own saliva, and especially in the, in the um, because of the, the uh, bacteria in your mouth that just ooze out all kinds of chemicals in your mouth. And one of these groups of chemicals, well, two of them are these lyase enzymes and the glucosidase enzymes. And those allow, uh, th those release those aromas in your mouth. So there are literally aromas that come up with retronasal that are not there in the glass. Oh, wow. Oh, interesting. That is super interesting. Um, cool. Yeah. So it's another really good reason for doing retro. Uh, because gotta you gotta swallow get, your beer. You gotta <laughs> swallow your beer, right? Um, dumb question. Like, in terms of practical advice for for people drinking beer at home, like mm -hmm. with these enzymes that are in my saliva and everything, like, should I hold it, take a sip of beer? Should I hold it in my mouth for a second or two? Would that be helpful, or or am I overthinking this? Uh, I don't know. It's it's always good to think. Um, I, I, my, a lot of these things that happen, they happen unbelievably rapidly. So a second in cellular scale in like molecular scale stuff is like a million years, right? So, so, you know, you don't have to do anything special. Just look for it again. It's about attention. Like you do, you get a little more fruitiness on the retro than you do in the ortho. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don is in heaven right now. I am. I can tell. I can I tell. Yeah. yeah. I have a uh, question before sure. we wrap up is, do you think that experiences heighten taste perception? Like, I, I mean, the one I think about is like hot, like cold beer on a hot beach. Um, and if you've, have you had an experience like that where what you were doing heightened the taste of the beer? Well, ultimately it's about living life, right? So, I mean, it's hard to separate like this, like I remember one of my uh, two great experiences with the just absolute worst kind of beer. One, I was working building floats for the Indianapolis 500 Festival Parade. And well, actually we were, we were, we had got all the floats out to the parade and then got them all back to the warehouse. And it was a long, hot day and, you know, and a Memorial Day. And I was pretty young and they, somebody broke out a case of, you know, rot gut beer and I remember that beer just tasting so good. And, and another time I was in a brewery that a stepfather, the stepfather of uh, one of my roommates uh, worked at a brewery in, in Cincinnati called Burger. It was an old, you know, regional brewery. And again, we, he pulled a couple of glasses of beer off this 10,000 gallon tank. And, you know, it was pretty average beer, but super fresh, super cold. It just tasted so good, you know. So, so those things, you know, I don't know. Everything goes into your valuation engine, right? Mm -hmm. um, so over time, that stuff builds up. And if you have these happy experiences, but again, I think it's just about, you know, tasting is not clinical and it can't be clinical because it involves all these non-clinical parts of our brains. Our brains are very non-clinical. You know, we feel things and we experience things and we create value for things. And so you have to go with that. I would say don't censor yourself. 
you know, because a lot of a lot of people who feel like, well, I'm not very good at this. I'm at a tasting and somebody's asking me, Randy's asking me, what do I get? But I don't want to say the wrong thing. You know, no wrong um, answers. There are no wrong answers because your inner taster knows, right? Your brain, though, whatever dumbass thing pops into your head, it's going to be right. And you don't have to understand it right away. But once you say it and your ears hear it, you know, it's going through different pathways. And then now you have a chance to kind of evaluate. It's like, well, why would I say that? And then you do the kind of put it, put two and two together. And there you go. This is amazing. <laughs> my, my, we were at a champagne tasting one time and my wife picked up a, got a sample in the glass and swirled it around. She goes, horseradish. I was like, really? <laughs> Cause that's like the thing you, you know, I got her kind of trained not to, not to censor herself. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I smelled it. It's like, oh, that's a little corky. Uh -huh. Right. Yeah. So that's a little trichloroanisole or TCA, they call it. That's basically a mold infested uh, part of cork bark in that uh, cork. And it also had a, the beer had a little bit of a kind of spiciness to it. Hmm. And you put spicy together with musty. What do you get? Horseradish. Yeah. Exactly. It, it was unmistakable. It's just like, and again, that's a configural thing. That's, that's multimodal because that spiciness, that's trigeminal, that bit, it's creating this flavor sensation that's that's like one thing out of two things. And, uh, you know, you got to, it's really helpful. I, I found a lot of things I'm learning in this book about all this kind of stuff we've been talking about has really changed the way I approach things and changed the way I think about tasting. Um, you know, and I think that's going to be the value of the book for people, for, for beer people, for wine people, for no matter what you're doing, if you're interested in the, these kind of chemosensory pleasures, um, it's really helpful to, to, uh, have a little bit of an idea how they work and how to get the most out of them. Is there ever any risk that people like, you know, part of flavor and art and music is, is some of the, is, is that it's magical? And mm -hmm. is there ever any risk that understanding this too scientifically or thinking about it too scientifically ruins the experience? Well, not for me, because I'm not technically a scientist. I'm just reading all this stuff in these papers and I'm just amazed. You know, I, I don't yeah. know whether, you know, the, 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 the people that write these, I don't want to speak for them, but they tend to be very siloed, you know, and the things that, I mean, there's, there's this whole area of study called uh, computational neurobiology. Right. So they're basically trying to create algorithms that mirror the structure and function of things like the olfactory bulb. Right. So they're way, 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 way deep in the nuts and bolts of it. And, you know, and I don't know how much it probably depends a lot on the personality, but I expect a lot of those people like wine. And sometimes, you know, I'm sure they're drawing conclusions, even, you know, even within their narrow specialties about like what like how they you know that's changing the way they think about things so so for you personally though you enjoy beer more knowing this is that it, this true? has just made me i mean I, I i i love the i love the mystery of it you know and i and put it putting it into science it doesn't remove any of the mystery it makes it more profound it's just like look at all this stuff you know look at how complicated this is look at these systems and you know we are kind of sitting at the control interface of it, but we don't really run, we're not flying the rocket ship. You know, we got a parts of our brains that are doing that. We we have a limited view inside and a limited ability to uh, affect outcomes 
you know, with regard to what we think. We, we like to think we're in charge, but we're not in charge at all. And to me, that's just even more magical, you know. I right. like that idea. It makes you humble, you know. Sure wow. does. Yeah, I could talk to you for hours. I know. And hours. I was going to be like, Don, it's time to go. I know. Uh, <laughs> I guess we'll just have to read the book, is what, we're, what we'll need to do. Um, Randy, thank you very much for this. You're not on social media. So for people who want to follow what you're doing or, or learn what you're up to, uh, what should people do? Well, I'm about ready to uh, launch some emails and things. So if people are interested in uh, signing up for one of those, uh, just go to my web. I'm, I'm, you know, they can find me on my, I've got randymosier.com and they okay. can click through to an email address. So just do that and send me a note. And, uh, you know, once I get, once I'm not like completely terrified and panicked over uh, getting these last two chapters done, I'm going to start sending out some little bit of like, you know, every two week kind of teasers. Here's some things I've been reading about that I think are interesting that you might like that sort of thing. So I will be oh, the cool. first to sign up. And I will be the second. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I got you both. Well, I don't, I don't, I guess Emily, you were on that. Uh, on yeah, that. I'll, 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 Randy will chat. I, I will put you on that because I'm wonderful. I, I'm working on it. I've got a format and I've been like collecting emails and stuff. So anybody wants to do that, just drop me a note and I'll put you on. And uh, that'll give me all the more reason to get my button gear and get that going. <laughs> awesome. Thank Great. you, Randy. Thank you. Great to talk to you both. Em, how awesome was that? Oh my gosh. So uh, I just want to listen to Randy talk all the time. Like I, I, I felt like I was being quiet during that episode, mostly because I didn't want to interrupt the amazing things he was going to say next. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, it was so high level. I was, I sat there half the time just absorbing and like, you know, he speaks of it so casually, but I really have to think about what he's saying and yeah parse it i guess it's great it's great like i mean i was definitely like whoa we're going to talk about like i i can't even remember <laughs> i mean i can but like I, i'm just not scientific in that way but it was so like there was it made me appreciate tasting beer and tasting food or just like living in general almost yes yeah um I'm a big fan of uh, other arts as well, music and paintings and all that. And I, I really think a lot of what he said actually applies to enjoyment of those things as well. It's Absolutely. so complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Well, everybody, please visit allaboutbeer.com and follow us on social media at allaboutbeer. And please visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to support this show. Uh, next show, what are we going to talk about, Em? Oh, I I'm not sure. Have said anything uh, yeah. I'm not sure, but you know what? If you have any questions or suggestions uh, for us, please email us at podcast at allaboutbeer.com. That's, all that's also the email for feedback, suggestions, to inquire about supporting the show through advertising. And speaking of advertising, let's hear a short word from our sponsors. This show is brought to you by Athletic Brewing Company. Athletic Brewing Company's award-winning craft non-alcoholic beers are fit for all times downtime, work time, game time, even gym time. Pick a time and grab an athletic because it's about time you could enjoy a great tasting brew anytime you want, even right now. Head to athleticbrewing.com and get some fresh brews delivered. New customers can even get 20% off with code allaboutbeer20 and free shipping on two six-packs or more.
Hi, this is John Hall, the editor of All About Beer, inviting you to check out the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast. It's available on all of the major platforms, and the weekly show features long-form conversations with brewers, growers, and personalities from the beer industry. New episodes release every Wednesday. Just search Drink Beer, Think Beer. All right, before we finish this podcast, uh, you can reach me, M. Sutter, uh, at www.pintsandpanels.com or through any social media channel at Pints and Panels. And I am at the Dawn of Beer on all social media channels, or if you want to send me an email, I am Dawn at thedawnofbeer.com. This show is produced by All About Beer. Visit allaboutbeer.com for articles, notes on this show and others, and to connect via the newsletter and social media. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.